Hey, what is up, everybody? Welcome to Backstage Pass with Ethan Scott, the podcast where we interview some of the best musicians in the world about their life, their career, and their thoughts on success. And today we have Chad Jeffers. Chad, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Ethan. No problem. So I guess for the people out there that don't know you yet, can you kind of give us who have you played for, kind of some career highlights just to kind of give you some you know, just some a frame of reference for everybody. Sure. I'm Chad Jeffers and uh, grew up in East Tennessee. I moved to Nashville in 1994, went to school at a school called Belmont University, where I got a degree in music business. Um, while I worked there, I worked for Reba McIntyre, just just in her um, <laughs> awesome. in her office, which is awesome. I worked there for two years. And uh, and what was cool about that is as a, a musician, Working in the mailroom, I got to know everybody in the hey, whole building. Yeah, <laughs> and so like literally, and you know, and then being the mailroom clerk, you're you're kind of the Superman for a lot of them because they have to get a package there tomorrow. So you're the one that's making that yeah, happen. Yeah, you're the guy. <laughs> and yeah, and so I mean, even to this day, um, I still see people that you know I worked with there at Starstruck. And what's really cool is that they, you know, I was still in, in college, so they they kind of took ownership in me, and so mm-hmm. they they kind of feel like they've had a a small part of my success of being in, in the music business. But anyway, but I did that for a couple of years. Um, at the tail end of that is when I got my first road gig, which, by the way, Reba's um, music director is one that helped me in terms of just oh, talking awesome. with the, the management of, of the, the group I was getting with and, you know, just kind of negotiating my, my mm-hmm. rate and things like that. So it was invaluable having him kind of just coach me along on that. But uh, yeah, so my first gig was with a group called the Wilkinsons, just father, son, and daughter. Our first tour was on the Alan Jackson tour, which was phenomenal. Um, then from there, I had my own band. Uh, while I was with the Wilkinsons, I was yeah. forming my own band, and and you know we were recording a lot, and we got signed to RCA, and so we did that for uh, for a couple of years. Had um, three albums, one with RCA and two independent. Mm-hmm. Um, from that, I got a gig with Keith Urban, and so Ooh. it was supposed to be one one tour, and it turned into multiple tours, which is cool. Um, so I was able to tour with him. Uh, after that gig, I was out with Kenny Loggins. He did a tour where he had a lot of slide guitar, which Dobro is, is my main instrument. So <laughs> I went out and played Dobro and lamp still and guitars with him. Um, and then after him is when I got the call to go out with Carrie Underwood. And, uh, and then that was literally 12, 13 years ago. So here I am Carrie today. Since. Yeah. So for the last 12 years or so. Let's take it all the way back. So you were born in Nashville. Uh, what was it like, or I guess you weren't born in Nashville, but born in Tennessee. What was it like right, in your home? What was it like in your hometown growing up? Because I grew up in like <coughs> South, South Kentucky. Like like you could cross the border of Tennessee in, in like 10 right. minutes in your car. And so like, was it like small town for you? Was it like, kind of tell me about yeah. what it was like growing up. It was somewhat of a, a suburb, well, not a suburb, but just kind of a mid-sized town. I mean, I think mm-hmm. Kingsport, I don't know, 60,000, 100,000 people or so. I mean, so it's not like super, super small, just like one red light, yeah. but it's, it's not <laughs> also like a metropolitan area. So, but yeah, um, and so growing up, um, there was a lot of music in our household. My dad, uh, my late father was a singer-songwriter, mm-hmm. and so, um, and he was more of the classic country. So Don Williams, Towns Van Zandt. Um, he also was a songwriter, so he had a, a couple of songs uh, recorded by larger people like Conway and Loretta back when, who was 
Conway Twitty was a big mm -hmm. country music artist, and then he and Loretta did a lot of duets together. Um, that song is still in the can, as they say <laughs> in the, the industry, so it was never released. But we, anytime Conway would come through our town, we'd always go see him. And, yeah. and so, I mean, I had those impressions early on of, of you know, seeing that and I'm like, oh man, I want to, you know, do what he's doing. That That's really cool. And, and uh, so, yeah, music was a big part of our life. So I got, and, and being from East Tennessee, there's a lot of bluegrass music up there, a lot of acoustic style music. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of my, somewhat of my foundation was the the bluegrass. And then also my, my dad's, influence of classic country and and just kind of the the real you know the johnny cash kind of yeah. stuff but also i had an older brother so he is about three years three and a half years older than me so i also had the influence of run dmc van halen <laughs> pink floyd you know all those yeah. things that an older brother normally brings in so that was kind of my music um kind of the, the melting pot for everything was just all of those different influences coming in at once and and by the way my my brother is also a professional musician as well. Oh, what does he do? Uh, so my brother plays bass for uh, kind of a classic country guy. His name's Joe Nichols. Okay. And, and my brother was also one of the members of uh, the band that, that I originally formed, uh, Pin Monkey. So he was also in the band with me. Family dynamic, very musical, brothers musical. So music is around your house a lot. But when would you say... Um, do you remember the moment where like music became like the number one passion in your life? Absolutely. I was eight years old and uh, my dad got a gig playing in front of um, 1500 rainbow girls. So rainbow <laughs> girls, kind of a junior league of the Eastern star, which is kind of a women's kind okay. of social club. And the girls, rainbow girls are between 13 and 18 years old. Um, I was eight years old. My brother was about 11. Yep. And so we thought it'd be awesome to be my dad's backup band. Yeah. <laughs> so I was playing drums at the time. My brother's playing piano. And uh, we were the last uh, last person or last thing on this mm -hmm. program of these girls. And, you know, as soon as we hit the last downbeat and we were done with our set, we thought, all right, we're done. Well, apparently they weren't done with us. So <laughs> the girls like came out of the bleachers and chase my brother and me into the dressing room. Hey, you know, we're yeah. like running like the Beatles, you know, like <laughs> trying to get away from them. So we get into the dressing room, close the door. We're looking at each other like, oh, my God. I don't know what that was, but that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> Run away from And it was literally at that moment when my brother and I, we, we started <laughs> just like, hey, let's this music thing. And, and our dad was so gracious to, you know, because he was quite accomplished. And so to have these two little knuckleheads. Yeah you know, trying to keep up with him musically and everything. And, but, but he was really awesome and just facilitating all, you know, and, and really help educating us on how to be performance ready and, and how to, you know, put a show together, how to prepare, how mm -hmm. to practice, how to rehearse, how to, you know, put a, he was a songwriter. So a lot of times, you know, how to write a song, put a song together, you know, and so all those different elements, we learned that at an early age. And, you know, kind of the fascinating, the kind of the serendipitous, if you will, of this this whole thing is when I got my very first gig with Wilkinson's, as I mentioned earlier, right out of college, of all the thousands of places we could have played, the thousands of venues across mm -hmm. the U.S. and everything, the place of my very first gig as like a professional musician was in that same arena <laughs> as when I played when I was eight years old. Oh, that's awesome. So I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, the Wilkinsons were at the time, that show we were opening up for Tim McGraw. So it was a you know big show. And 
And so anyway, it was it was kind of fun going back to that same arena. Like, all right, this is this is kind of a, a cool moment. So with high school coming in, so you're eight years old, you have this passion for music. Tell me about like your high school years. What were you doing then? Because a lot of people that are probably listening to this are high schoolers right now and they have this passion yeah. for music, but they have school or you know, whatever's going on. So how did you kind of handle the drive for music but also school? Yeah, and I mean, like any other kid, I you know, I played soccer, um, mm -hmm. and you know, <clears throat> in high school, you know, I was in the the high school band, and so during the concert season, I would play saxophone. In the marching season, I would um, march snare because yep. they needed an extra snare guy, and <laughs> yep. so I'm like, all right, I'll do it, I'll jump in, which is kind of a, a cool. Um, to me, that's kind of the best of both worlds. Um, I was in, you know, in the chorus, and you know, I was I was doing everything. I was in scouts, and I was. You know, and then, of course, as a musician, as a guitar player, I was, you know, on the weekends going out and playing clubs. You know, they had mm -hmm. sneak me in the back yep. door, <laughs> yeah, I've been there. which is kind of funny because I'm on stage at one point, you know, yep. but they had still kind of get me in the club. And um, and so I did that. And then also I, I got a job as a disc jockey. And so uh, a lot of times after I'd finished playing, um, I would go and do a, a midnight to six shift on uh, Fridays and Saturdays. And then uh, on Sunday afternoons, I would go in at seven, and uh, which was normally more of a syndicated show. That I was just sitting mm -hmm. there and just kind of babysit, you yeah. know, the the whole the, the console yeah. and everything. But you know, midnight to six, you know, I was actually talking and everything. So music was it, it was all about music, um, you know, whether it's in the chorus, the band, you know, my band, or you know, playing, um, you know, other things. And then also we had a family band, and so my brother, kind of that same, you know, on. Uh, ensembles what you know behind my dad on that very first gig um it turned into my brother and me and we had mm -hmm. a neighborhood girl that was in and then also another guy named matt mahaffey who kind of was like a lot of people say he's our our brother from a different mother yeah. and so he <laughs> spent a lot of the weekends with us as well um he lived just like literally across the highway from us but um and he's also a professional musician and he uh has toured with beck and done work with pink and um, he was on the wrote some things on the Shrek album, and he wrote a commercial to wow. Expedia, the Expedia dot com. Mm -hmm. Well, that was him, and uh, so he wrote that and recorded that, and and then now he actually has a um, he did all the music on the Nickelodeon Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle hey. series that they have going. So he did all the music for that. So he's like incredible, like uber talented, and so um, you know, and so that that was our our thing. We all just hung hung together, especially the three guys of us. You know, we had you know, dream about music. And we had, you know, sometimes um, on weekends, we'd put all of our gear together and take pictures, you know, and like, <laughs> oh man, this is yeah. all of our PV gear, you know, we're like, oh, we're so cool. Yeah. And, you know, we've <laughs> so got two all guitars. Like, yeah, it, it's, it's pretty funny. And, and it's funny to look back at some of those pictures, but even at that, those moments, we're dreaming. We're like, ah, oh. and, you know, I remember, you know, watching some Van Halen videos and I'm like, oh, you know, they're playing in front of so many people and like, I want to do that. And, mm -hmm. and, and watching, uh, you know, just all those different concert series. So music was always a part of what we did. And so it was, it was our dad that said, um, you know, our mom was kind of, you know, preaching saying, well, if you, you guys need to go to college, you need to be ready and go to college. Yeah. Then it was our dad saying, well, okay. Yeah. She's, she's probably right. You need to go to college, but if you're going to go to college, go to somewhere where the music is go, go where the music is happening. Yeah. And so for, you know, especially for me and, and you know, my brother, I mean, country music was what we wanted. So Nashville is the obvious choice, 
you know, if you're in pop rock or, or, you know, other things, you know, maybe New York or LA or, yeah. or even Chicago, Minneapolis or, or Miami. Um, but you know, that was the, you know, our dad said, go to where the music is where you can become a part of the fabric of that community. And, and you get to know the people that are actually doing what you really want to do, mm-hmm. which was, was invaluable, uh, advice to us. You were talking about playing the club gigs and I think we can, we'll get into this as you, you know, you moved to Belmont, but what was your process as a high schooler, like the first paid gig that you had, like in the, in a club or whatever, like what is, what did that look like for you? Like landing that? It's hard to really pinpoint exactly when that was because Mm -hmm. as a family band, we would play a lot of different areas and we'd kind of get, you know, you know, get paid, you know, a little bit here and there. Um, I do remember my dad taking me, this is obviously before I drove, you know, taking me to a store and I could pick out my own bicycle. (laughs) And he's like, you know, you, you get to pick out any bicycle you want because this is money you earn. And so he made that really clear. He goes, this is what, this is what music has done for you where Mm -hmm. you can pick out whatever you want. And I remember that I was, that was putting two and two together. I'm like, Oh, you mean I can do music and earn money (laughs) and have this as a career because I'm here being able to buy my own bicycle, you know, with the help of no one, you know, it's just, I'm able to do that. And so, um, you know, I, I do remember playing with other bands where, you know, they had paid me, you know, $50 or a hundred dollars yeah. to, to come and play. But, you know, there's really not one specific moment during high school, you know, college was a different story where I, you know, I, I was, especially being one of the only slide players on campus where I, yeah. I could, you know, I kind of had the monopoly on that. <laughs> so tell me about that. So you go to Belmont and you're uh, new to that scene of musicians, mostly probably. So what does it look like? New territory, new guy in the block. How do you start getting, um, like, what did it start looking like from then, like getting the gigs and starting to work the system over there? Yeah. So uh, with that, I, the one thing I did is I focused on songwriters. Because a lot of times songwriters, um, they may not be the best musician, yeah. but they, you know, they, they might be able to sing, but they might not even be the best singer, but they know what they want musically. And so a lot of times I would kind of be of service to them. Yeah. And, you know, because I was more skilled on the guitar, I could, you know, they could sing something for me and I could play it. Right. And, and then they could actually sometimes even hear kind of for the first time on a music instrument where they're hearing what, what was in their head. And one thing I did is, is really made myself available to songwriters because once they're like, hey, I need to get into the studio and record this, well, I'm their yeah. obvious choice <laughs> because I'm the one that's, that's been right. helping them all along. And so that was one of the things. And so I did that a lot on campus. Um, the other thing I did on campus was helping music majors because they always need someone to accompany, accompany what they're doing, mm-hmm. especially if it wasn't a piano player because that wasn't my forte you know, guitar and slide guitar was my, my thing. So I played, um, I, I played with anybody and everybody, everybody, and for no money, most of the time this was for nothing. And, and it was from that, that would actually bring on the paid gigs. Or if it wasn't that person particularly, it would be, they'd say, Oh my gosh, you need to talk to my, my buddy, John over here. He's doing some really cool stuff. And he, you know, he's playing out in town and he needs someone to help him out. Yeah. And so it was usually those kind of connections that that was started. I never put my name up on a bulletin board or, you know, mm-hmm. or on you know, any kind of website or anything like that saying, hey, I'm a guitar player. Hire me because, I mean, no one's going to do that. It's all through word of mouth. 
and and actually getting out and playing with different people, which led to, um, you know, any gig I've ever gotten as a musician, it's not been through an audition. It's always been through word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And and almost all of them, uh, I mean, 95 percent of them, um, I didn't even audition. And, you know, the, you yeah. know, from times of yeah. like Kenny Loggins calling me saying, hey, Chris Rodriguez says you're the guy. So you're the guy. I'm like, cool. Do you want to hear anything I've played on? He goes, no. Can you just be in L.A. in, in three weeks ready to go? <laughs> And that was it. I mean, he didn't even want to hear me because he's going completely off the recommendation of someone that he trusted. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how did all this stuff in college lead to uh, the Wilkinsons? Um, So I was in a a college band and we were playing, once again, kind of as a band, we were playing for anybody and everybody that would listen. Yeah. Um, And then eventually uh, we caught the ear of Matt Rawlings, which is, session player uh piano player just phenomenal and then also kenny greenberg who's phenomenal session player guitarist uh kind of even to this day they're kind of the go-to guys um and they started taking us around to different labels and different um publishing houses and things like that in nashville to kind of get a buzz and kind of get some excitement going on around us Mm -hmm. and this one particular publishing company that we played for um I, I didn't really know anybody in the room, you know, in terms of who was yeah. listening to us. I, I just, I, I, even to this day, I remember it, but I just don't remember the faces. And uh, it was right before I graduated college. So all this was going on in my last semester of, of college. And, you know, a couple of weeks before I graduated, I get a call from uh, Fitzgerald Hartley, which is one of the larger artist management companies here in, in Nashville. Yeah. And they're also in L.A., and so uh, the the manager calls me and he said, um, hey, he goes, Doug Johnson, who is the producer of this band called the Wilkinsons that I'm managing, he heard you in the band and we're looking for a dobro player. And he says that you're the guy. So can you be <laughs> ready go. in two weeks and, wow. and be ready to go? And that was it. I'm like, sure. You need to hear me play or anything? Because no, Doug Johnson, I mean, he's their producer. He says, you're yeah. the guy. So you're the guy. And so, you know, it's it's a lot of those those moments where, you know, I, I just kept, you know, I had the, the vision, I had the passion, and I just kept going forward and just keep moving forward, even on those days that it, it wasn't fun and it wasn't like, I would rather be out, you know, skiing right now, or I'd rather be out hiking or something. You know, I just kept doing music and just kept pursuing it. And it's those moments when you don't want to do it and you just keep pushing forward uh, where you get those phone calls where it's saying, hey, you're the guy. Can you do this? So after that, was it just like your own band automatically or were you playing for other people like between the Wilkinsons and Keith Urban? No, it was pretty much um, right after the Wilkinsons, it was Pen Monkey. And mm-hmm. so while while I was out with the Wilkinsons, I was, you know, as a band, we were pushing forward and recording an independent album on yeah. a VS 1680, which is one of those old school hard disk <laughs> recorders, you know, and it was, it was crazy. And, and none of us really knew how to run it. So I just kind of said, all yeah, right, new I'll, technology. I'll, yeah, it was new technology at the time. And, um, and so I just kind of jumped in and just said, all right, let, let's just kind of figure this out. So literally our first album was me experimenting with this new, you know, contraption, this new machine that I'm working with. And, um, so as the, as that progressed, uh, and we had also we'd play around town whenever we I was off the road with the Wilkes, and then our drummer was on the road with a different artist, and so it was tough for us to to work on schedules because yeah. there was a lot of times 
I'd be coming in. We had played that night, <laughs> yeah. and then he'd be leaving. He'd be leaving yep. at midnight that night to go, and and so we, we were just trying to work as much as we could, and and when we were together, record as much as we could because we saw that um, as a band, recording is what really helped us grow forward in terms of developing our sound and what we were looking for, um, so that we could go out live and and kind of have a you know kind of have our our ducks in yep. a row in terms of our sound. So. Keith Urban is a massive name in country yeah. music. <laughs> so how did you go from Pin Monkeys to Keith Urban? Yeah, so um, when when Pin Monkey, when we got signed to RCA, um, I, I back in the Wilson, Wilkinson's days, I found a, a mentor, and it's a guy named Jimmy Olander, which in the country music world, he's a, he's a heavyweight. He's a heavyweight guitar player. Um, literally like Brad Paisley and some of these guys got their style wow. from Jimmy Olander. I mean, he's, he's that, he's just, he's an icon. And so um, I met him at a festival and I, he and I just started talking and, and he helped me throughout my whole career. And so whenever yeah. Pin Monkey got signed to RCA, um, I, I called him. He was one of the first people I called after, you know, my mom and dad, I called him and I'm like, dude, <laughs> Hey man, we got signed to RCA, which is cool because it was, he was also part of that group. Mm-hmm. So RCA had a couple of different labels like RCA and Ariston and BNA. And so we got signed to BNA and he was on Ariston. I'm like, isn't this awesome? We're like label mates now. Yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. I'm like, great. Uh, now what do I do? You know, because so much mm-hmm. of the time for, for musicians and, and artists, getting the record deal was kind of like, that was the yeah. end goal, you know? And so step like, one, and get a record which, deal. Step two. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is, Make getting money? the record deals you know. <laughs> yeah exactly getting the record deals only the start of everything and um but you know i was like great what do i do now and he said well he goes you need to start songwriting so i started getting hooked up with a lot of the the hit songwriters of nashville and one of those guys that i, I got hooked up was kind of a guy that was on my bucket list of, to write with is wayne kirkpatrick mm-hmm. um wayne is one of the guys that wrote uh, the eric clapton hit changed the world uh, he also produced Little Big Town and wrote some of their big hits and everything. Um, anyway, so he and I started writing together uh, quite often. And, and when we would finish a song, we would do a, a work tape. So and we do it to a click track. So mm-hmm. we, you know, we'd be writing in a studio. So we just hop into the studio. Um, he would do a guitar vocal and then I would put down a dobro part and whatever else. And then um, the songs that that we felt you know worthy, we would bring in. Yeah. Um, the band and yeah. at the time he was producing little big time so a lot of times it was band singing yeah. on my demos and and then also wow. some of their band guys coming in and so um there's this one particular song called uh, wonder woman that he and i wrote and at the end it was just it was kind of a, a groovy kind of a song and at the end mm-hmm. he said man you just play dobro just just play i mean the, it, it's <laughs> yeah. kind of a loop thing so yeah. he said you just play and play and play and play and play and i'm like okay i that's fun i could do that so that's what I did. And then when the band came in, um, the drummer said, dude, who's that playing Dobro? And he goes, oh, that's that's the co-writer, Chad Jeffers. And he said, man, he goes, I'm you know, I'm putting together a new band for Keith Urban or he goes, I'm part of the new band and we're looking for a slide player. And that's exactly what we're looking for. Hey, so then he got yeah. my name from that and then he gave it to the music director of Keith Urban, um, a fantastic bass player named Mark Hill. So Mark Hill calls me up and says, hey they you know chris McHugh says you're the guy so you're the guy can you you know and that was it so then all of a sudden i'm on the road with keith urban oh my gosh so i don't want to skip over this though 
So you said, um, well, I just, you know, I decided to get in touch with all the major songwriters in Nashville, you know? Right. Can you kind of like talk about how you did that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, whenever you, whenever you get a record deal, mm-hmm. that becomes a lot easier. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Because a lot of songwriters want to write with you because their chance of getting a cut or you're having, you know, a song yeah, recorded makes sense. is, is infinitely a lot better uh, because they're, they're kind of, and that's actually even gotten even more in that direction. And even in the last couple of years mm-hmm. to get a song cut um, or, or recorded, it's, it's to write with either the artist or a producer or someone that's really close to yeah. the project. <laughs> so for me, that was, um, you know, I just, I knew that as a assigned artist that, that was kind of one of the, the benefits or one of the perks. And so for me, and especially my mentor telling me saying, dude, you need to write. And at the time I really wasn't like a really strong writer. I was strong yeah. more in the music sense because mm-hmm. that's what I've always done lyrically, not so much, but getting in the rooms with these hit songwriters, you, it's sink or swim. I mean, yeah. you learn fast that you gotta, you gotta get it going. And <laughs> so that's one thing that really helped me in terms of my, my songwriting in general. But, you know, it's one of those situations where you just got to take advantage of what what's in front of you. And a lot of times in this business, um, you know, it, it's it's just it's sometimes it's really easy to overlook what's right in front of you. Yeah. And that's one thing of having like a mentor or someone like that in your life just saying, hey, man, this this is low hanging fruit for you. You can just go and mm-hmm. grab it and and run with it. And that was directly from my mentor just saying, hey, great. Congrats on your record deal. Hey, get to work go right. That's what you need to do right now. Yeah. So that, that was my, my, that was how I got into the writing part. So you're with Keith Urban and then how long were you with him? And then how did it, how did the transition to Kenny Loggins take place? Yeah. So I was with Keith for a couple of years and, um, he's one of these guys, he likes to change up his band quite a bit. So he Mm -hmm. changed up his band and in the interim, I um, actually there's a couple of other artists that it was really fun to go out with was the Wreckers, which is the Michelle Branch and okay. Jessica Hart group, and then uh, a lady named Jamie O'Neill, who's a powerhouse country singer. And actually, with Jamie uh, was when I went on my first USO tour. So we went to um, the Middle East, went to Turkey, Ooh. Germany, um, Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, I mean, it was, and it was during actually the war. So, I mean, we were, wow. we were in thick of it. And then, um, then I got with Kenny Loggins soon after that. And I was literally walking into a writing session in downtown Nashville and I get a phone call and it's, it's a guy named Mark Childers, who was our, our music director. And I had met Mark, this is back on the Keith Urban days, um, we played what we call a dust bowl. So we're playing like in a racetrack. It's like mm-hmm. a county fair. That's cool. And it, it hadn't rained in forever. And so like <laughs> everything was dusty. Dust is all in our gear, all in our guitars and everything. But I remember after the show, um, the opening act, they came over, the, the band did, and came over and hung out on our bus and, you know, just sharing war stories and just hanging yeah. out. And and the guy sitting next to me, you know, but I knew that he had a studio in Nashville and everything. And I just said, hey, you know, hey, if you ever need a slide player or anything like that, just give me a shout. And, you know, I live in Franklin as well. So, you know, just, you know, it's easy if you ever need yeah. anything. And, and he, he said, all right, cool. Yeah. And I never thought anything about it. So fast forward that years later, once again, where I'm walking in, into a writing room and I get this call from and he says, hey, my name's Mark. And he goes, you probably don't remember me, but, you know, um, 
we met when you were out with Keith and he was with a different artist and, and he said, uh, you know, he goes, well, now I'm the music director for Carrie Underwood and we're looking for a slide <laughs> oh player gosh. and, and you're the guy, can you meet with management today? So at the time, this is at 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I had jeans and a t-shirt. It was kind of in the summer months. So I had, mm-hmm. you know, t- jeans and t-shirt and just <laughs> an acoustic. And I just said, well, you know, I, I don't know, me with management today is, man, I'm not dressed right. And I got the different guitar. They need me to play anything. He goes, no, 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 no. They know what you sound like. They, they, yeah. they just want to talk to you. And so literally um, I went and did my writing session and then hurried over and did a meeting with management. And then that was it. So 12, 13 years later, here we are. Whenever you were in the writing room, was that just still, was that songwriting for your own sake or were you consulting on something? No, I was, I was writing. I mean, I, I'm always, so ever since, ever since my mentor says you need to write, I've just been writing ever since. So, yeah. you know, that was, you know, you know, almost 20 years ago and which has been another kind of diff, that kind of a different lane for me in, in yeah. terms of my career. Um, both just as uh, a creative outlet in terms of writing. Um, I'm getting more into music licensing. So there's that avenue um, and also working with different people on commercials. And mm-hmm. and then also it's just helped me with, uh, you know, my demos in terms of being a musician where I get with another writer and they're like, oh, dude, I love the Dobro. You need to play on my song I'm recording next yeah. week. <laughs> you know, there's, yeah. there's all of those kind of little just rub things. shoulders so, with everybody that's actually working. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely been a, a, a great... You know, I would say to any musician out there, um, writing is not only for your your music's sake in terms of your um, your profession as a musician, but also just your creative outlet. And yeah. and also it, it it's helped me in terms of, um, you know, being also a producer to kind of have more of the the 30,000 foot view of a song or something that's going on mm-hmm. instead of just focusing on your own instrument on that song. So you're able to look at you know, the, the, the production or the, the arrangement a little more objectively. What would you say is like the lowest part of your journey? Like the start from the bottom moment for you? Yeah. I don't know. I don't look at it as like the lowest point. I just look at it as a, um, you know, I, one thing when I worked for Reba McIntyre, her husband at the time, Narvel, um, is our, was our manager and yeah. he's, he's fantastic. I mean, he's managed, a lot of different careers right now, you know, Blake Shelton and Kelly Clarkson. And yeah. I mean, he's one of those guys. He's just, he's really, really wise. And, and I remember um, when I was in the mailroom and I remember him stopping by and we we're talking about music. And, and at the time I was probably talking about the, the ups and downs of whatever I was going through musically. Mm-hmm. And he just said, Hey, he goes, here's the thing with this business. It, it's a roller coaster and there's, there's highs and there's lows and no matter who you are, no matter what level you're on, it is a roller coaster. So, I mean, he was saying, you know, if you're a Reba McIntyre or if you are what I was, just a college musician, because everyone's going to have their own roller coaster that they're on. He goes, here's the, the secret of it is knowing when you're at the top and knowing when you're at the bottom of that roller coaster mm-hmm. and knowing where you are, where, where you just kind of being aware of where you are and kind of embracing that where you are. So if you're at a low, you know that it's not going to be forever. Yeah. You know that roller coaster, it's going to go back up. So what can you learn when you're on that low? Because chances are when you're on the high, you're not, you're <laughs> yep. just like enjoying the ride. You're like, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> I can do this forever. This is never going to end, which is all lies. 
but whenever you're at your low, you're looking, you're searching, you're like, all right, what, right. how did I get down here? What, how did I get here? What, what, what did I, is there something I did or was it a circumstance or was it, um, a, uh, was it just the way things are in the, you know, in, in this profession? And so that's one thing that has really, really stuck with me. So whenever pin monkey, whenever we lost our deal, um, yeah. I remember we were in our management, our manager's office um, at the conference table. We we're actually planning kind of like our next, our next big thing with with what was going on with the label. And then our manager walks in and said, "Hey, I just talked with the head of the label, and not moving forward with the song, not moving forward with the project, not moving forward with with you guys as artists." And so I'm like, "That's mm. it," <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so I remember that we just kind of had the, the the breath knocked out of us, and we're like, "Okay." Cause we'd already almost tracked a whole nother album for them. And we're like, okay, well, all right, great. That's, that's that. All right. What's next for us. And so it was one of those things where we're like, all right, this is a low. I don't know if this is the lowest. I hope it's not the lowest because I mean, it's bad, but it's not really that bad. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we're just like, all right, what can we do? And it was actually the, the guy that was producing the, those songs for the next album, um, Mark Bright, um, and so our manager actually called him and, and told him and, and, and he kind of had the same thing. He goes, ah, oh, you know, Hey, that sucks. Well, okay, cool. What's next? Let's do this. And, and, you know, our manager's like, well, do you not want to like, just kind of drop them as like, you know, your project? And he goes, no, look, he goes, I, I didn't sign on with these guys with this band pin monkey because of them being signed to RCA. I like their music. I like what they're doing. I like what they stand yeah, for. Dope. So let's, let's go, let's make an independent album. And so we literally just kind of got our, um, you know, we had some money as a, as a collective. And so yeah. we just got together and we made another album with Mark Bright as, as our uh, producer. And it was actually through that because we, we tracked everything at a studio in Nashville off music row. And then we brought it all back to my house by this time, by the way, I'd graduated from the BS 1680. So I was full into pro tools. Yeah. And so, um, we finished the album here at my house and um, which is also my studio. And, um, and it was through, you know, hanging out with Mark Bright where he and I would you know, spend a lot, you know, a lot of days, just the two of us, you know, mixing and, and working on the project. And, um, and it was through him that actually I, uh, I went into his studio one day and he goes, Hey, listen to this. And it was a new artist that he was working with, and it was a song called Jesus Take the Will. And he goes, this is yeah. a new artist. She just won American Idol. Her name's Carrie Underwood. It's pretty cool, huh? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's cool. And <laughs> little <laughs> did awesome. I know, it would be a year and a half later, and I would actually be out with her. Now so. you're playing that song for years. Yeah, yeah forever. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had a ton of mentors that you've mentioned, but out of all of that stuff, what what would you say is like, the best piece of advice that you've been given in your career or, or that came at the right time. Cause I know you talked about the always be writing, you know, but what's, yes. a, what's another kind of right place, right time, right person dropped it in there, gave you some good direction. Uh, you know, a lot of that is, is when, when things go really, really wrong yeah, and, and you're, you're just kind of standing there just kind of numb and you're like, okay, yep. what do I do? Uh, some really good advice I had is like, okay, in the next five minutes, what can I do? You know, that's literally like within five feet of me or, or so. What, what's the, the next thing that I can do that may take me 
closer to my next goal. And so, and I'm not yeah. talking about, okay, well, I'm going to go record another album. I'm going to record another song or, or whatever. It's like literally what in five minutes, what could I do? So sometimes for me, when that happens, even to this day, you know, when things like that happen, I'm like, okay. Or sometimes when I'm just overwhelmed because I just have so much going on in five minutes, what's the next quick thing that I can do? It's almost like a quick win. Yeah. What's the next thing that I can do? And so sometimes it literally, I'm looking here at a couple of my guitars, you know, I have guitars throughout the whole house. Um, and, and I just say, all right, Hey, that guitar, it needs some new strings. All right. I'm going to change strings on my guitar. And it's just one thing to put me in motion toward the next thing. And so then a lot of times after I get, yeah. And so after I change strings, I'm like, okay, Hey, I feel just a little bit better right now. And I'm a little more focused. And so that's one thing that, that the piece of advice that I, I really, um, that I use often is just like, what's the next thing I can do in the next five minutes? So do you have, um, would you say that you have like a life saying or a motto or kind of like, um, like a guiding light that helps you like make decisions? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've got a mission statement that it's, it's basically, um, you know, my mission is to be honest and respectful, to bring service, passion and compassion in order to inspire progressive creativity. And so that's, it's actually something I, I screenshot on my phone. I got like a little meme yeah. and everything or a little, um, Kava kind of thing on it. So I always have that on my phone just to kind of keep me mm-hmm. focused. Um, I, I, I have like the shining object syndrome really, really bad. Yeah. So like <laughs> I'll be doing something then, you know, squirrel oh, and then I'm awesome. just off on a different or a YouTube rabbit, you know, I'm like, yep. I'm looking for one thing. Then all of a sudden I'm down this YouTube hole. Yeah. Three uh, hours you know, later. All these, yeah. <laughs> and so for me, it, it, yes, it pays yes. dividends to have something where I'm constantly seeing that. And so, you know, to me, it just, it helps kind of focus me and get me laser you know, focus on what really matters and what I need to do now. Because the other thing that that I've been known to do is just to do busy work. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, it's like, well, what did you do today? It's like, oh, I don't know. You know, I, I cleaned out my paper clips and then I did, yeah. you know, and then all this <laughs> stuff, you're like, none of that stuff matters. And so for me, I always try to, you know, busy's not good. Being productive and being efficient and effective is good. And so for me, it's always doing, you know, even if, you know, my, my space is not quite organized, but as long as I was really effective that day, um, that that's what matters yeah. to me. So when yeah. did you, when did you decide on that mission statement? Like, do you remember when, when you were like, I need a mission statement or like, crafting yeah, it was it? actually, well, no, I was meeting with a, um, she's kind of a, a business coach slash life coach kind okay. of person, um, last year. And she mainly just deals with, um, musicians or people in the entertainment business, and so um, it was actually her. She said, you know, let's let's work on something and not a mission statement that you're going to write and then you're going to put it in a book and yeah. put that book on the shelf and never see it. This is something that you need to like always have out, you know. And so actually I've got it, you know, like on the refrigerator and I've got it kind of throughout uh, the house mm-hmm. um, just so I, I, I do see it all the time. What made you decide to go see this lady or whatever? Because I was actually working on a lot of other businesses along with my music business stuff. So I was uh, doing some online uh, course creation. So my course backstage notes. And so I went to her. And so we did like a full business plan. We did like, I mean, top to bottom. Yeah, it's dope. And so it was, it was that um, because once again, I, there's a lot of things that I'm, 
I'm not as good as I am on some other things. And so I'm always seeking out the experts because I don't have time. I mean, everything that she taught me, I could probably figure out on my own by doing some of the YouTube rabbit hole kind of stuff. (laughs) But, but I know that I would be so distracted on other things and it would take me probably a year to come up with this stuff. Or I could go meet with her for, you know, once a week for maybe, you know, a couple of weeks and it will fast track me. And the, the end product will be even better. And so for me, I'm always looking for that edge of, of the expert in that field that can help me along with that. And so whether it's, you know, someone, um, you know, sometimes even like engineers. So I'm, every now and again, I'll have an engineer come out to my house and we'll work on my my studio and the signal yeah. chain and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Just because I know that they're, they're going to have a better product than, than what I would come up with you know, they'll do a lot faster for mm-hmm. me. Yeah, that's good. So yeah, so that's why I went and saw saw her in the first place. What do you see in people that like holds them back from having the success in the industry that they want or or being as good of a player as they want or being as good of a business person as they want? Um, I think first and foremost, showing up on time. <laughs> yeah. I think... Really? I think honest to God, I think if you're a musician... <laughs> And because everyone's saying, how can I stand out from everybody else? What what can I do that's different? And like yep. literally show up on time, <laughs> be ready, dr- be dressed, ready to go and have gear that works. You know, honest to God, if you do those three or four things, you're leagues above most other people. Wow. And you're going to stand out just because of that. And whenever I say show up on time, that actually means. 15 minutes early. Right. So if, if whatever, if the call time is four o'clock, well, you need to be there no later than three forty-five. Yeah. Ready to go. And I tell you, I mean, I've seen it a million times. If you do those simple, that, that simple mentality of doing that, people will remember you. They're like, Oh, that guy that shows up all the time, like on time. And think- it's so amazing. You think, well, that seems like that would be. Yeah. I was going to say, do, do you think people like way overthink how to differentiate themselves? I do. Yeah. I mean, I think just by showing up, being professional, being ready to go, I think a lot of times that, you know, uh, that in and of itself, um, especially um, until you get like into like the uber professional side yeah. where, you know, with the stuff that, that, that we do, I mean, it's like, once again, if you're on time, you're already late, you know, right. you need to be there early and, and be performance ready. So be camera ready, be stage ready, whatever, or practice ready, mm-hmm. rehearsal ready. You, and have your parts ready to go. And so the other thing is, you know, the difference between practice and rehearsal is practice is what you do on your own. And that's like, you know, working out parts, working out your sounds, working out, you know, all those things where a rehearsal is not practicing, but that's putting all the practices all together yeah. of everyone's collective rehearsals or everyone's collective practices, you know, mm-hmm. is putting that together. And so a lot of that is just being being ready and being ready to go. And also I think the other thing that, that makes people stand out is whenever you have a can do attitude mm-hmm. of just showing up and saying, you know, and that's one thing also throughout my whole career, I think that's one thing that's helped me stay relevant to a lot of things that I'm doing is, yeah. you know, uh, whenever I got the Keith gigs, like awesome, you play slide guitar and acoustic. Great. Can you play, um, you know, ganjo and mandolin? I'm like, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and of course, when I hang up, I call yeah. my, my buddy, Zach, <laughs> Zach, dude, do you have a mandolin that I could borrow? <laughs> you know? I have to practice for a world and, tour. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and, and the same thing happened with Carrie, you know, our music director called me, um, 
the last tour on the the storyteller tour back in 2016. And he said, Hey man, um, can you play harmonica? I'm like, Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, not really, yeah. <laughs> but I'll give it a shot. And so it actually turned out to be one of the cooler spots of the show where wow. Carrie and I, she, she learned harmonica. And so she and I did like this dueling harmonica oh, thing dope. back and forth. And, and it was amazing. So then this last tour, the crap pretty tour 360, once again, it was in the round. So we're the stage went yeah. lengthwise of the arena. And so, um, a, a little earlier this time last year, uh, our music director sends out a text to the band, a group text saying, Hey, is, I know this is a long shot, but does anybody play saxophone? And yep. so remember how I said <laughs> yeah, I play saxophone in the concert band? Yep. Well, and, and I, you know, I got some scholarships and everything to colleges that I never took because I didn't want to play saxophone for the rest of yep. my life. But when this <laughs> came up, I'm thinking, well, you know, I sort of play sax and like, how do you sort of I'm like, well, you know, 20 years ago, I kind of yeah. played it. And so um, the one thing I love about Nashville is is the openness of a lot of like companies and, and the, the way they support musicians. So yeah. I called um, Jupiter uh, Band Instruments that's located here in town. And they hooked me up with a saxophone and Diadario, who also does um, Rico, mm-hmm. which is like their, their woodwind kind of stuff. Yeah. They hooked me up with mouthpiece and ligature and, and reeds and all that stuff. And so I literally, they're asking me all these questions about saxophone yeah, what like, kind of I saxophone do you want <laughs> yeah it's just like yeah and i'm know. like i don't know just, <laughs> what kind of read do you up. prefer you, sir <laughs> it was all of those questions i'm like i don't know can you just put it together i don't yeah. know if this is going to work and um but and sure enough it worked and then not only did i just play a song um you know every night 12 to fifteen thousand people every night playing this thing but also they said hey can you do like this 20 second or or 30 second just <laughs> it's just you and so literally the whole stage went black it's just a spotlight on me and then i'm playing this little sax thing and then the our piano player comes in and then then, then they created this whole scene where it's like a jazz club so it's hey, me yeah. playing sax <laughs> and then um our music director uh, play, playing bass he's playing like an upright and then you know, carries on this chase lounge. So it's just the three of us, like a focal point. And it, once again, like the harmonica thing, this turned out to be like such a cool, yeah. you know, spot for me. And, and also, you know, the guitar is kind of like my security blanket, you know, give me right. a guitar and I'm good with anything. But with this, this is kind of every night it got my attention to, to step it up and to make sure I'm like right on point. But, uh, but yeah, but having a can do attitude will take you so far um, in, in terms of just, you know, and, and just seeing that just the, you know, whoever's hiring you, that they see the willingness of you mm-hmm. just saying, hey, look, this is not all about me. This is about this show and the, the artist, because as a side musician, I'm there to support the artist. Yeah. I'm not there to show people the coolest new little guitar lick that I just learned. But this is about supporting the artist and making them look as good as possible. So for me, the, the saxophone was a part of this show that they really, really wanted. So I'm like, OK. Hey, whatever I can do to facilitate that and make yeah. that work, I will do my best to do that. And so, anyway, yes. Yeah, so having a can-do attitude is is huge. I feel a sense here that there are a lot of saxophone players that are listening to this that are offended. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and I mean, whether that's good or bad, sorry, saxophone players. But like this, this yeah. kind of brings us into maybe a common uh, a mindset where the question is how do you, how does someone know if they're good enough? to be like a professional, at least like skill wise. Cause we talked about, you know, show up, showing up on time, practicing. And for right. the people that have that down, you know, cause that's like 
almost a prerequisite in a weird kind of way. But then the other prerequisite is like your skill level as a musician. But I think a lot of people now, and I think this is that's why this is worth talking about, they hear, man, this guy played saxophone in a high school band, didn't practice for 20 years, and is having a solo saxophone moment in a world tour, you know? Right. And so kind of tell us about, um, to just talk, just talk us through about that. The, the offended saxophone players kind of help them out. Yes. Yeah, so sorry, offended saxophone <laughs> players. <laughs> and, and, you know, I get offended sometimes uh, too because so there's funny. a guitar player that feels like he's like a slide player. And I'm like, yeah, that's not a slide player, but you know, <laughs> typically what it is, they're, they're, they're making sure that, that whatever they do, it's fitting the, the part right. of the song. So sometimes it's not necessarily being the best. Um, mm. you know, as a matter of fact, Preach. growing up, you know, yeah, well, well, my my mom and dad, well, it was mainly my mom. She goes, you know, for every minute that you're not practicing, someone else is, you know, who's one in your spot. And, yep. you know, so there's kind of that, those kind of one-liners that she's really good at. Yep. And then <laughs> also the, the other thing is. The moms yeah, of the world, we so, thank you. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the other thing is, you know, no matter how good you are, chances are there's someone better than you out there. Yeah. And so, you know, you've always got to be striving to work on that. You know, there's a really good book that that um, I read last year. Um, it was funny because we we did the Jimmy Fallon show in uh, Central Park, hey, which is cool. really cool. And so in Questlove, he and I, we kind of share a, a parallel, not to put myself on his level by any yeah. stretch. But he's also, he's a professor at NYU. And I was a oh, professor cool, yeah. at, at Belmont University. And so, um, you know, it was, it was, I, actually, I got to hang out with him and talk with him. And also prior to, to doing that show, um, I had read his book, uh, Creative Quest, which I highly recommend to anybody out there, Creative Quest by Questlove. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really good. And the audio version is, is fantastic because it's him talking. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, most of it. And also he has kind of some music interludes. Yeah. <laughs> if he's talking about something musically, he'll actually bring in the, the music. Oh, that's awesome. And, uh, but it's fascinating. But one thing he talks about in terms of musicians is that he encourages any musician to do their own album because one Mm. thing um, that, that it, it helps uh, facilitate is it helps that, that musician become more of an artist musician. Yeah. So if you're not the best at something, you you're able to, to, to demonstrate that in a creative way. So it was like, yeah, he's not the best, but Mm -hmm. man, listen to how, you know, most like, so for me on saxophone, it's like, probably a lot of saxophone guys are going, yeah, I would never play that like that. Yeah. Cause I am giving my own interpretation right. of the saxophone and, and I'm probably playing it like a guitar player, <laughs> hey. you know? And so, yeah. you know, like, so here's the thing, you give me a guitar and I'm going to play my, I'm going to play whatever yeah. you give me um, a piano. I'm going to kind of play probably kind of what I played on guitar, but on piano, mm-hmm. That makes sense. you know, so it's, it's kind of my music ideas are kind of the same. Oops. Sorry. My Alexa's turned on somehow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it it uh whatever instrument I'm on, I'm, it's it's kind of my music ideas are kind of flowing through. It's just that instrument is kind of the the vessel of that. Mm-hmm. And so um so Questlove, his point was, you know, whatever it is, you know, get it down on tape of your kind of your creative mm-hmm. um and and your instrument kind of journey. And so that's one thing I, I would highly recommend for anybody in terms of whether you're the better or best or whatever, I, I think recording in general is 
to me that as a musician that helped me grow more than anything you know i mentioned pin monkey earlier where that's where we kind of like our sound started coming together once we started recording and i know for me as a musician once i started recording myself and listening back to it i was able to listen to it a little more objectively as opposed to like emotionally the playing part of it i was able to listen back i'm like oh my gosh i'm rushing that like madman Mm -hmm. or that's just really sloppy or that could be tighter you know, and that was kind of my evolution and just in terms of just getting better as a musician, because whenever you play something live, when that last note hits, it's gone. Yeah. Whereas when it's recorded, you're able to it's more of a concrete thing that you can listen back to and improve upon. So for the people that are practicing, how do they know, like, like if somebody's like, man, I want to go on tour or I want to be a recording artist or I want to, you know, whatever. How would like, yeah, how do they know what the barrier to entry is in terms of like skill level? Well, there's a couple of things. One, I think um, I would say record yourself and listen back. Also, yep. using other people around you as a barometer. Um, and then also being in a band with people that are just a little bit better than you. Yep. Uh, you know, there, there's a, a famous line that or a famous quote that everybody uses a lot, especially in the kind of the self-help areas is, is a, a, by a guy named Jim Rohn, who was kind of a um, yeah, self-help Jim guru. Rohn. And so, yeah, so Jim Rohn says, you know, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So mm-hmm. if you're hanging out with a bunch of losers, well, chances are you're going to kind of be in that same boat. Or if you're hanging out with people that are self-motivated and, and you know, doing really good things, chances are you're going to be in that that sector. I think yeah, the really same thing as music. a musician wow. in terms of being in a band. If you're if you're in a band with a lot of just you know hot shot players that are just you know incredibly great, yeah. well you've got to come up to that level. Player. Yeah, yeah, and that to me that looking back, I mean, especially being in the the Keith Urban band because all those guys were session players. Mm-hmm. You know the the Mark Hill, the Chris McHugh, Chris Rodriguez, and Steve King. You know all those guys. I mean, they were like at the top of their game, um, and they they still are. And so for me, I'm like, oh, crap, I got to get my crap together and like really hone in on on my skills and get up to that level. Um, And in terms of whether you're ready or not, I I would say, listen, listen to those people around you. Mm -hmm. And and, you know, um, and especially if you're on, you know, multiple instruments, kind of see which one people are paying the most attention to. Um, I know that whenever I started playing Dobro that like it was instantly people were like, holy cow, that's really, really good. Yeah. You know, and, and even even when I was just kind of learning, people were like, that's that's really, you know, there's there's kind of a, a genetic qua kind of thing to it. There's mm-hmm. kind of a magic thing that's going on. Um, so I would say listen to those people that are around you and especially the qualified people that are around yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what are some big pieces of advice for somebody that's wanting to kind of go out and be a pro musician, but like can't seem to like meet the right people? Yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of it is is kind of the the back to the advice my dad gave me. You got to go to where it's at. Um, you know, I know there's been a lot of talk lately of you know in terms of you know, well, you can do it on YouTube and you can you know release a video and hopefully yeah. it'll go viral and, and millions of people will see it and then you'll be on your way. And you know, of course, for every one of those you hear, there's about a million of them that that yeah, does not right. happen like that. Mm-hmm. And to me, it, it's, it's almost like marketing. The best marketing is word of mouth. Yep. You know, and right now the word of mouth, it's not necessarily in person, but it's, you know, through social media and different things of that nature. Yeah. But still the, the principle is still word of mouth. I still feel like as a musician, the best way is, you know, playing with other musicians 
and kind of what I did, like, if, uh, you know, playing with songwriters and a lot of it is getting in with people more on the grass or on the ground level. Um, you know, once someone is, is already kind of out touring, it's a little bit harder to right. get into their camp. Whereas if they're still kind of forming a band and everything like that, it's a little bit easier because, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you got to be there where they are. Um, you know, Kingsport where I grew up is about four, four and a half hours from Nashville. And that was, you know, our, our dad always tells us, he goes, man, he goes, they're not going to call you from Nashville saying, Hey, can you come down and play on something? Right. You know? Yeah. Okay. Next week is fine. You know, <laughs> but they, they're not going to do that. They're going to call you up. Hey man, can you bop over here in the next hour and, right. and throw down yep. some Dobro tracks? You know, that's the way it's going to work. And, um, and so being here is, is a huge part of that. And once again, just being part of the community in this, where if someone says, you know, you know, Hey Johnny, do you know anyone who plays Dobro? It's like, Oh yeah, man, I just saw this dude. You need to give him a shout. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of, that, that's how the, the best way to get in, um, and, and to get on some of these, um, you know, what, what eventually turns into, um, touring groups and, but it's, it's ground level is always the best. So what do you do to like even find shows to play in the first place? Like, let's say you have a band, you're with some guys. What's the process look like to be like, okay, let's go play a place. Well, and and obviously this, this, a lot of it depends on what what genre you're in and and a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think at the the base of it is um, there, there's a couple of ways. One, you can go to where something's already created or something that that's already going on. So like a, like a city, um, like a city function. So if there's like a street fair, um, or, um, you know, something down by a river, like a rubber duck race or something yeah. like that, where mm-hmm. they, they have music and they, they're already going to be people there. But if you sell it to the organizers that, you know, Hey, live music would be really good. And there'll also be a sound system there. So if you guys need to make announcements, you know, there's, there's that kind of thing. Yeah. The other way is if you create something. So if you, um, you know, if it's more of an acoustic thing, if you go to a coffee house and, you know, if they close every day at five o'clock, you know, approach the owner saying, hey, have you ever thought about maybe having a songwriter's night or maybe like an acoustic music? Yeah. And so you can actually stay open until like eight or nine and have like some cool music. Um, there's been a couple of places around Nashville where, um, you know, like Sunday brunch, sometimes they'll have like acoustic music in yeah. on that. And sometimes it's literally just a guy just playing guitar through an amp or something like that, doing some light jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, another buddy of mine, he makes actually a really good amount of money by doing um, like five to eight kind of happy hours at some of the upscale kind of hotels around in this area. Um, yeah. You know, so there's, there's those kind of opportunities. So it, it depends on what, you know, genre, whether it's a, a single artist or a band, but um, I, I think to always keep your eyes open um, and, and obviously look through the newspaper or, or look online mm-hmm. or Facebook or anything like that um, of, of things that are going to be coming. And the other thing you can do is actually go to Chamber of Commerce and see um, like see what the, the schedule events are for that year. Because um, a lot of times, actually, once it hits publication, they've kind of locked in certain things. Yeah. So you'd almost be doing it a year in advance. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, finding the event organizers. Um, you know, any of that. And a lot of times it's, it's that's smart. letting them know that you are local and that you are available. So if there's something that's uh, not even in the public, um, you know, public knowledge that, yeah. you know, where they can keep you in line. And then of course there's always private parties 
weddings. There's always that kind of stuff. If you're more yeah. of a, a top 40 kind of band or kind of a, you know, that style. So, I mean, a, a lot of it is just kind of getting your hands dirty and just, just always keeping the open ear uh, for something that's going, you know, that's, that's happening. So what, uh, whenever you're on tour, what does the typical day on tour or like, or if you're playing like a Jimmy Fallon or that, like, what does it kind of look like the tour preparation in, in like the typical day? Yeah. So, um, the tour basically, actually, let me start the night before. So let's say we go on, um, I think this last tour is like at eight fifty. Mm-hmm. So we go on at eight fifty. we play, um, or maybe it's eight thirty. Anyway, we, we play for, you know, two hours. So we get done at, you know, 1030 or whatever, and we get out of the building by 11 or so. Okay. And then we head, head to the next town. So we're on the bus, sleep on the bus, head to the next town, depending on how long it is. You know, typically if the tour is done right in terms of the routing, it's usually, you know, three to four hours to the next city. Um, sometimes it could be six. Yeah. So you can actually sleep. And then we get to the hotel, check in. Um, you know, like early in the morning and then, you know, typically you have the, you know, most of the day just being at the hotel, that's the time where you, you know, you, you do yourself, uh, self care. So you, you go work out, you get out and walk around town. For me, I I write in a journal every day, which has been invaluable just to, for me to remember where I've been, because (laughs) once you get in, once you get into this cycle that I'm describing, um, I mean, you, yesterday, could have been actually last week. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, it, it goes sense. by so fast and, and yeah, it's kind of crazy. So, um, and then early afternoon you go over to the venue, um, you know, you do your sound check, probably a, a show that was the, the size of our, our show. Um, you know, you do probably in mid afternoon because it takes so long to put the stage together. Yeah. Um, and the same thing for clubs. A lot of times, you know, you'll, it'll be early afternoon. Um, and so, um, yeah, so three o'clock or so, and then sound check. I don't know, three to four, and then usually you do, you know, dinner, and then you have pretty much until um, eight twenty when you need to get ready and get ready for the show. Then you go do the show, and then that same thing happens again. So you get into a rhythm of it's like the, the movie Groundhog Day. Yeah. So it's the same <laughs> thing every day, and so that's a lot of that's kind of the misnomer. People are like that's so cool to be a musician and travel around and see all the sites and yeah. see all the towns and everything. Like, no, I, I literally see a hotel and a concrete. You building, know what all the hotels you know. look like though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and the concrete buildings, they all look the same. And you know, it's, it's, you know, when you have a day off, you can get out, but, but mm-hmm. by and large, I mean, it's, it's pretty much it's work and it's, you know, the, the biggest thing as, as a professional is staying healthy, staying in shape, Mm-hmm. keeping a, you know, a clear mind and, and just being in, in working order and, 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 and playing, you know, just keeping your, your, uh, you know, your craft up as a musician and, you know, being present and also, you know, just being a professional doing so many shows is, is to be able to not just go through the motions and we're like every show it's, you know, even if you have yeah. the flu that day, you're still getting out on stage and it's the best day of your life yeah. <laughs> and you're, it's the best crowd you've ever been in front of. And you're really entertaining everybody because that is your job mm-hmm. and you you're making the artist look great. That that's, that's your job. So do you guys usually, is it like a show like seven days a week? Is that usually how it goes? 
No, normally um, on the tour, we'll do two shows and a day off. Um, that's usually the the kind of the the uh, the way it goes. Every now and again, we'll do three shows, but the size of this tour, you know, having I don't know, it's like 18, 19 trucks. Um, it's just, yeah. and the show is two hours long. And with Carrie, with her, you know, her amazing vocals and, and the songs are really rangy. Oh yeah. Um, two hours is a lot of singing and, um, <laughs> yes. and, and, you know, to, to give it your all. And so um, they tried to limit to not do a, a third show because, you know, everyone it's, it's, it, it kind of wears on, you know, the crew and, and everybody. And so, uh, yes, yeah, so it normally is, two days on day off, maybe two days. So in most weeks we'd do, I don't know, probably five shows, mm-hmm. um, four, four or five shows, depending on how, where they fell. So on the day off, is it the night before you get on the bus, you go to the town and then you just have a whole 12 hour day to do whatever you want in the town. Yeah. It depends on what town it is. Um, yeah. they're, they're really good with, with us being in, in just cool towns, you know? So, yeah. um, you know, if we're in a, if we play a town that that has you know very limited amount of stuff to do, then yeah, we'll go to the next town. Or if we're in a town that's awesome, oh, you'll just we'll stay there. Try to hang out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll hang out there and then go the next day. So, but uh, but you know, a lot of times on those days off, it's it's rest and just you know just kind of just recharging and and getting ready for the next one. Would you say that's the hardest part about? Because you talked before about keeping a journal and making sure that you're like mentally on the whole time. Do you think that's the hardest part that people don't realize before they go out about being like a professional musician? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that definitely plays a role in it. Um, and also, you know, just you know, if if you're um, you know married and have a family and, and all that stuff, I'm not married and don't have a family, and it's still tough. You know, being away yeah. from home. And being away from my my inner you know my immediate family and everything like that, um, yeah, that's that's one of the tougher things too. And also just kind of quote unquote living a normal life, you know, just being able to, um, you know, just do you know barbecues in the backyard kind of thing. You know, you're just limited yeah. when you're on the road that that all of those things um, don't happen typically on the road. And actually, um, you know, a lot of the the artists I've been with, they try to really accommodate that where. You know, we will have, you know, kind of parking lot parties, yeah. you know, where they will hire people to come in and grill <laughs> yeah. out, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, if it's a, if it's kind of a, a Mexican fiesta kind of thing, they'll have like a little oh, Mexican awesome. fiesta band and, yeah. you know, just that kind of stuff, you know, just to keep everybody's um, spirits up and everything, because, you know, um, being away from your home base, uh, you know, especially the way that we tour, I mean, we'd be out maybe for a month or two, um, you know, yeah. without coming home. So, uh, you know, that just kind of, you know, definitely will, will play with your mind sometimes. Uh, did, and, um, so, so yeah, definitely keeping a journal is, I, I think whether you're traveling or not, um, and especially as a creative, just to kind of get the junk out of your head mm-hmm. and get it on paper and just kind of forget about it is, is very valuable. The other guys that I've interviewed have all mentioned this and I wanted to see if it was the same for you. Um, they talk about the guys that they go on tour with being like, as close as family, you know what I mean? Cause you're on the bus oh, with yeah. them and all that stuff. So does that, I guess, how do you start building, do those relationships just kind of naturally happen since you're around them so much or, or like with the fiestas and the parking lot parties and like the days where you just kind of get to hang out? Like how do you kind of manage the relationship with your, your fellow band and your friends on the road? <clears throat> yeah, it, it's, it definitely, um, 
I mean, with with most of the guys, I mean, we've we've all been together for you know twelve or thirteen years, and yeah. some of them I've worked with um, in other bands. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's it's been all you know. Um, but I, I think as a professional musician, you you learn how to make friends pretty fast, especially when you're on a, a 45 foot right. bus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's like summer camp on wheels, you know, we're all, that's awesome. you know, there's a small kitchenette, so we're all sharing that. So you need to clean up after yourself and, you know, mm-hmm. there's, you know, your, your, uh, the bunk area. So you need to be quiet if people are sleeping, you know, just kind of common courtesy, uh, courteous mm-hmm. to, to your fellow bandmates. And yeah, I mean, we, we definitely, we, um, we spend a lot of time together and, um, and yeah, we're all really close and, you know, we have, we have great conversations. Um, you know, that's not necessarily true with all bands. I mean, there's been some bands that people are a little more to themselves. Yeah. Um, but also I wasn't with them as long as what I've been with Carrie. So, um, uh, but yeah, I, I, without a doubt. And it's, it's kind of funny because, um, one of our background singers, it's, it's a girl. So she's the only girl that's on the bus with seven other guys yeah so she's so lucky right (laughs) (laughs) that's what we remind her like you're so lucky you get to be on the the road with seven (laughs) other great guys (laughs) yep but uh like early on when she first got with carrie um you know she she got married soon after that and you know i would always kind of joke with her i'm like you know you've spent more time with us than you actually had your husband yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah she didn't think that's too funny but (laughs) now she thinks she thinks it's funny now (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) so anyway uh, yeah you, you definitely um you know you you form great friendships and bonds with all those that you're you're out on the road with but uh yeah so it it is definitely like family out there what's a common myth about the music industry that you think most musicians like believe but it's like not true at all um that it's that what you see on stage is how everything else is so you know whether it's like you know all just like hey everything's all together and and it's all lights and you know glamour and and you got texts always handing you water and all that stuff, which that's not true at all. <laughs> you, <Yeah>. know? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, and, and the thing about it is, you know, my work of, of me being on stage is people see literally less than 1% of actually what I do. Yeah. So um, they don't see the other 99 plus percent of, you know, me working on guitar stuff or working on a certain lick or practicing that, that lick until it's just flawless. And, you know, getting all my, my guitar stuff together and, and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. They don't see that. They see just that one little percent that's on stage. And so um, I, I think the what most people, what even musicians is, you know, you got to enjoy the journey. You yeah. got to enjoy the process because the process is the majority of everything that we're doing. And so for us, you know, like, you know, it, here's the thing, the opposite. If you didn't enjoy the journey and it's just about the stage, then like after every show, then you'd be depressed because you'd be like, Oh my gosh, that, mm-hmm. that was it. But because we all know it's all about the journey. It's like after a show, you're like, okay, cool. All right. We got, we got another show or what can we work on to make the next show even just a little bit yeah. better. So you're always striving for, you know, just to make it as good as it possibly can be. And for you as a person that you're the best version of yourself. Yes. That hopefully today you're just a little bit better than what you were yesterday. How do you kind of identify what to practice and maybe even like what does your own kind of practice regiment look like right now? The one thing that I've been doing is going back to fundamentals. So yeah. um, a lot of times I and like I'm not like a scale kind of guy. I don't read music. 
and I'm not like much of a scale kind of guy. And so a lot of it for me is, is in terms of shapes, especially on, on guitar is yeah. just, you know, playing around the shapes and everything. Um, and so I, I think for me, a lot of it is uh, one thing I really like doing is finding musicians that I really admire that, that do things online in terms of like YouTube, like lessons. Yeah. And, and even if, if I'm not a big fan of their style, I still like taking things from other genres of music and other um, styles of music and applying it to my own. So one of my main, one of my biggest influences uh, as a dobro player is a guy named Chet Baker, who is actually an old school jazz trumpet guy. And mm. he, it was all about his phrasing um, that I was always, and I don't play trumpet either, yeah. but I love his, his phrasing of how he, he plays things. And, you know, dobro having a lot of single note kind of runs that I could definitely relate a lot of the trumpet stuff that he did to yeah. dobro and so i oh. think a lot of times when you can find those kind of connections regardless of what instrument they're playing but it's more about their their musical ideas that you can pertain or that you can apply to your instrument um i think that that's one of the most valuable things you can do and here's the thing no one's going to say you know, whenever people hear me play dobro they're like oh he ripped that off chet baker right i mean no <laughs> one most people don't even know who chet baker is so they're not even going to that's not even going to relate to them so um, that's one thing that, that I do a lot, even to this day, whenever, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, he died like in the eighties. And, mm-hmm. and so, I mean, you know, I'll just listen to some of his old stuff and just kind of figure it out on Dobro. And obviously there's no YouTube videos of right. Dobro players learning Chet Baker. So it's me sitting <laughs> down and learning. I know. Start that. <laughs> totally. <laughs> but, uh, but, it, but it's me sitting down learning some of those things. And what happens almost without fail is, you know, I'll get the lick, but then also I'll learn something else in the process. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's really cool. But, you know, just kind of happy a departure mistake. of something else. <laughs> totally. Happy mistakes. And and so I think that that's, um, as a musician, you always got to be looking for those little happy mistakes where you can, you know, kind of chuck that in the back of your mind. So whenever you're in a situation, you're like, oh yeah, let me, let me find that again and do that. So what's the most random or weird thing that has happened like on stage at a show that you've played? Like what's like a standout like memory that you have from being on stage? that's like ridiculous. Uh, okay. Well, pin monkey. So we were a kind of a bluegrass country band. So, you know, I played Dobro mm-hmm. or lead singer played acoustic and then my brother played bass. So it's kind of like a Rolling Stones kind of rhythm section with okay. kind of bluegrass instruments. And so, um, we were out touring and our, our, booking agent said, all right, well, we've got a night off. You guys can either just go play a show and basically, you know, make, you know, 400, $500 and get your hotel paid for, or you have to eat the cost, you know, buy your own hotel and all that kind of stuff. And we're like, well, let's go play. That's why we're out here for goodness sakes. So he said, okay. So this is in Clinton, (laughs) Iowa. I mean, this is something I'll never forget. It was freezing outside. We played Clinton, Iowa at a place called the pig pen. So the pig pen was like an all matte <laughs> okay. black kind of you know, basement club. And so we were opening for a band called Cheese Pizza. So Cheese Pizza, um, what we didn't know, I guess, in our booking agent, either he didn't know or he thought this would be funny, is that Cheese Pizza was a band dressed in drag playing oh, like heavy metal kind of music. Yes. So, and of course, people <laughs> looking at the bill were like, this is awesome. Cheese Pizza and Pin Monkey. Yep. Man, what a great combination. Yeah, at the Pig and Pen. So, um, yeah, at the Pig Pen. So we, 
So we get out and start playing, you know, you know, kind of all this country music kind of stuff. And, and people at first, I mean, they, I think they were so shocked. They're like, what in the hell? And they're like, something's about, you know, so then like after the second song, they're like, you guys suck, man, get off, you know, and all this stuff. And so, but we still finished our, our, our set and we actually, we even sold merch. So many people came up to us. They're like, man, you guys are really good, but what are you doing here? Yeah. You know? And, and <laughs> yeah. so it was kind of fun, but, and, and, uh, yeah, it, it was insane. And so, yeah, the, the lead singer, he came out dressed, um, he dressed up as a yeah. bride. So he had like a wedding gown on and singing, you know, like a virgin and, and all this crazy stuff. And, and it was so funny because, you know, a lot of times as we would do radio interviews, people say, what's kind of like the worst gig or like, yeah. it wasn't really the worst, but it was just crazy. And so we gave them so much um, publicity from this because we're on major radio. And so they actually came out to some of our other shows and brought us merch and swag. And they're like, man, thank you guys so no much. Way. We actually That's become so friends awesome. with them and they're super, super cool. So but just so random, but you know, you, you know, whatever the situation, you just make the best out of it and, and hope for the best. <laughs> so nothing ever, I mean, nothing ever with Carrie, no weird moments with Carrie. Not necessarily with Carrie. I mean, I had a... Um, or not with Carrie individually, but with her tour. Oh, yeah, with her tour. I mean, there's a, there's some... There's, like, this last tour, you know, we there's a lot of lifts, you know, mm-hmm. kind of elevators, like, on on the stage. And every now and again, one would get would stuck um, at the at the very top. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's certain things like that that would happen. But, you know, thankfully... And the stage was 10 feet off the ground, so... Fortunately, nobody fell off the stage. That yeah. was probably probably my biggest uh, fear. I think was just you know because there's a lot of times we'd be walking around on the stage in in the dark, and uh, there was one time that Carrie almost took a spill, and I was standing right in front of her, so I kind of caught her. <gasps> oh my god! It kind of got a lot of attention, but um, I mean, I, she's very athletic. I think she would have caught herself. Yeah. But <laughs> that's sc- I didn't even think about that. It being so dark and you having to like get in a different position or walk across and get on a queue or something. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of those that, and the, the, the way her stage was laid out, um, they had what they, the, the, the whole stage, as I said, went the length of the arena and yeah. it was the shape of an eye. And so there was kind of a, a, a Ooh, like a thin yeah. part of the stage that came out like, you know, it was only like, I don't know, four feet wide. And we call it the monorail because it looked kind of like a monorail yeah. going over the crowd. <laughs> and so, and then there's like two pits that was in, in, kind of like in the stage right, yeah. so like people could be like in the stage and so that that monorail actually when i'm playing saxophone i had to walk on that thing while i'm playing in the dark so i'm thinking man this is not yeah <laughs> this is not my <laughs> idea not be, of yeah. fun you know like <laughs> just just kind of focus make sure you stay on the stage so yeah so it was always kind of a you know you had to pay attention yeah, every I, night as a drummer i have never had to encounter that problem so, oh, right. <laughs> yeah. I'm just well, like, and so, I'm you know, Tommy Lee. Right here. <laughs> well, you know, Tommy Lee, you know, he used to have that drum set that went upside down and it got yes, off, yeah, like, that upside would down, out. you know. <laughs> so, nobody can predict the future or anything, but what's, um, what are some big ideas or plans that you have maybe come up in 2020 or the next year? 2020 for me is just spreading the, the spreading the message about, you know, the different things, uh, ways people can get into music and yeah. how they can be performance ready. And so whether you're performance ready, where you're wanting to go on stage or into a studio or in a writing room 
or uh, just in, if you want to be in the music business in general. And that's why I created Backstage Notes, which is at backstagenotes.com. And that's where um, people can go and learn more about that. Mm-hmm. And then actually there's there's a free giveaway in terms of the six steps of being performance ready. And so whether you're going to be on a stage, like in front of 12,000 people or in, in a club, or even if you're just giving a presentation, you know, in, in front of a, a group just yeah. speaking, you know, these are all the same principles in terms of helping people. And that's what my 2020 is looking like in that, as well as playing with Carrie mm-hmm. and also just recording and writing as much as I can in the process. So backstage notes, that's not, that's not just for guitar players. That's for anybody. It's, it's for all musicians. Yeah. Anybody an artist, musician, um, you know, anybody who's in front of people is what it's for. Mm-hmm. Man, that's good. So final question. If you had a magic wand and you could get all the musicians listening to this podcast to do three things that would help them out, like what would they be? Uh, first of all is get a mentor. I think that that is one of the most uh, important things ever. And whenever I say mentor, that doesn't mean like, you know, a Yoda or that doesn't mean yeah. like, you know, it, it just means someone who's a little bit farther along than you. So if someone is, if you're, let's say a, a two or a three on a 10 scale, yeah. you know, if you find somebody is a, that's a six or a seven, well, they're a little bit farther ahead of you. And so they can help you out because they know something that you don't. Yeah. And so it doesn't have to be someone that's a professional. You know, a lot of times when people say, well, you're talking about this mentor. And, and for me, you know, my, my mentor so happens he's, he's a Grammy award winning artist. Yeah. So there's that, yeah. but it doesn't have to be that. There's a lot of people that I've learned from and, and especially um, doing this online course that are just a little bit farther along than me. And I think that no matter what level you're on, I think having a mentor is paramount because that will get you closer to your goal more than anything is yeah. having someone help you with that. So that would be the first thing. The second thing um, I would say is what we talk about, kind of the three or four things is, is just showing up on time, mm-hmm. being ready, learn your instrument, uh, be very proficient at your instrument, um, and, and just knowing... Um, you know, knowing what it's capable of. So whenever someone, an artist or someone that you're working with, um, you know, wants you to play something, you're able to really work on that. Um, the third thing I would say is, is check out backstagenotes.com because I think that's also going right. to help you because I interview seven different people, um, seven experts, literally these are like the best of the best in this business. And, and I ask them very tactical questions, mm-hmm. um, not theoretical kind of, you know, you know, if you had a magic ball kind of thing or a crystal ball, like these are like when you moved to town as a songwriter, what, what were the three things that really moved the needle for you? And, you know, those kind of things, which I think those are the things that matter. And that's what people really want to hear. That's what they want to learn. So, um, and, uh, and I mean, I I guess if there's a a fourth thing is, is just enjoy the process, enjoy the journey. And, um, and, you know, as as Narvo, as the the manager told me, you know, it's going to be a roller coaster. It's going to be up and down, and just enjoy it and enjoy the the the, the highs and and the lows as much as you can enjoy the lows. And I know that sounds weird to most people, mm-hmm. but a lot of times the lows that's where you're going to grow absolutely the most is on a low. Dude, you are awesome. Well, thank oh you. Gosh, this is like <laughs> so much gold in this. <laughs> oh, thanks. Oh my gosh. I appreciate it. All right. Well. Man, Chad, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Ethan. And thanks, everyone, for listening, and uh, we'll see you on the next one.